Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. There are an estimated 8 million Americans suffering from substance use disorder today. Little more than 10% of them receive the treatment that they need. Medicaid expansion has enabled many to get help, yet last July the Senate came within a single vote of phasing it out and eliminating as much as $775 billion in benefits over the next 10 years. Joining me now is Jay Rue who's the Chief Operating Officer and Vice President of Government Affairs for the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington, D.C. So, Jay, welcome. Thank you very much, Greg. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Okay. Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, who is the chairman of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, announced that his panel is going to begin work in early September on legislation to stabilize and strengthen the individual health insurance market for 2018. I kind of thought that we were we were done with much of the healthcare tinkering and healthcare reform uh, this past summer. So, tell us a little bit about what you're anticipating, Jay. Sure. Well, thank you for the question. Um, with regard to Medicaid expansion, I don't necessarily think, from what I have seen and read, and in, in the conversations that we have had um, with members, uh, both Republican and Democrat, in the House and the Senate, I don't see much of an appetite to go back to making any substantive changes uh, to Medicaid expansion, certainly not to the degree that they were, uh, the changes were made in the AHCA and the BCRA. Um, I think what we saw was a hesitance uh, to remove any funding over the 10-year window that both of those pieces of legislation uh, looked at from Medicaid expansion because we have seen a significant uptick in individuals being able to get treatment for the first time. And as we know, and as uh, we've talked about before, uh, treatment helps. And the lack of treatment can uh, greatly harm individuals with substance use disorders or uh, mental health issues. I think uh, what we will see next month is with the uh, hearings from Senator Lamar Alexander uh, as the chairman of the committee, I think what we could ultimately see is a deal with the so-called CSRs, the cost-sharing reduction payments uh, to insurers. I think that there's probably a deal to be made with the CSRs and uh, waivers for states to act a little bit more independently of uh, the federal government. So as we've heard over the last few months, uh, President Trump has talked about uh, not continuing to appropriate uh, the CSRs to insurers to keep uh, premiums down for individuals uh, within the country who are currently uh, receiving those benefits. So I think the, the concern is that these 
uh, CSRs have always been made uh, by or under the Obama administration, but it's not something that's authorized to be appropriated through Congress. So a judge ruled in 2016 that those uh, payments were not allowed to uh, continue. They have continued, and I think that there is a growing agreement that these need to be authorized by Congress. So I think a deal that you could see this fall could potentially be the authorization of those insurance payments, those CSRs, and then the, the deal that will be struck is authorize those, uh, but then allow for states to have certain waivers uh, given to them uh, to be able to operate a little bit more independently uh, within the Affordable Care Act. So I think that there could be uh, room for a bipartisan agreement. Uh, that would be the direction I think a lot of people in Congress uh, want to take, uh, particularly after what we've seen over the last uh, eight months. I don't think that there's a lot of stomach uh, to jump back into the arguments that we just went through. So uh, we'll see how it shakes out. But on a larger, more 30,000-foot level, a lot has to be done uh, between now and the end of September. You, the, you, we're going to reach our, the debt ceiling. Uh, the 2018 uh, federal budget uh, has to be agreed to. And uh, that would, of course, give reconciliation instructions for uh, tax reform uh, to be done. And reconciliation also runs out on health care. So if they want to do any deal after September 30th, it would have to be done on a bipartisan basis because they would no longer have the ability to do it uh, with 51 votes. So the next couple months, I think, are going to be pretty telling. Uh, there is There are potential deals out there for health care reform, which I think would kind of take the uh, viewpoint of the uh, outline I just shared. So moving on to the opioid epidemic uh, specifically, how do you view Congress and this administration's response to the opioid crisis that we're currently in in our country? Sure. Uh, well, one of the first things that the, uh, President Trump did was uh, sign an executive order that created the Opioid uh, Commission, which is headed by uh, Governor Chris Christie. Uh, the other individuals that are uh, partaking in that are Bertha Madras of Harvard University, uh, Governor Cooper of North Carolina, Governor Baker of Massachusetts, and former Congressman uh, Patrick Kennedy uh, are on that uh, panel as well. Uh, they just released an interim report, and I know we'll delve into a little bit of this uh, later on, but um, a couple of their recommendations were to declare a national emergency, uh, to provide waivers for the uh, IMD exclusion, uh, which I know we'll be getting into. Um, but so they have released their interim report. Their final report is due in October, so we're certainly anxiously awaiting uh, the results of that. On the congressional side, I think we have seen a huge commitment on the part of uh, both the appropriators, the budget writers, and members of Congress uh, to continue funding these pr the programs that we all know are very important to treatment, to recovery, uh, to uh, prevention. Um, we have seen a, a real commitment to continuing the funding uh, needed for uh, these important programs. The president's budget uh, included the uh, second tranche of funding for the Cures Act at $500 million. So I would say that it's been positive uh, thus far. Uh, you know, certainly we we all think that we can do uh, an awful lot more, and you know, we hope for greater action in the future. But I think uh, thus far, what we have seen has been positive. And can you describe for our listeners the importance of the waivers? Sure. Yeah. So the the IMD exclusion. Uh, is, so the waivers it would be for Section 1135 waivers, the so-called IMD exclusion. And basically, the IMD exclusion is a, an archaic ruling that precludes the use of uh, federal Medicaid financing for care provided uh, to patients who are in mental health and substance use disorder residential treatment facilities with larger than 16 beds. 
So basically with that 17th bed, you can no longer get federal funding. So if you were to provide a waiver listing that cap, you would immediately provide access uh, to, you know, I haven't seen the, the latest figures on it, but you know, thousands of additional individuals who uh, currently would not have access to those beds because there are simply not enough beds uh, to go around. So the lifting of that uh, cap uh, would be extraordinary for uh, you know, those individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. So I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Governor Christie and the commission made it uh, a high priority in their uh, list. It was one of their first recommendations, uh, along with the declaration of a national emergency. And speaking of the declaration of the national emergency, they, uh, the Trump administration waited, I believe it was about uh, 14 days, and just last Thursday they agreed to do so. So let's talk about uh, that just a little bit and, and actually how that goes into effect and then what some of the ramifications are of declaring the opioid crisis a national emergency. Sure. Well, the, the Stafford, uh, there are two ways basically that the administration can declare a national emergency. It's, they can do it through the Stafford Act, which would require a declaration from the president, and it more closely resembles the things that we have seen uh, with regard to natural disasters like a hurricane or a tornado. Um, but it, it basically, it, it better equips and allows us to mobilize and coordinate different federal and state agencies to really home in on the opioid crisis. Uh, it would allow for money to flow more freely uh, to the states. Um, it would give access to the Federal Disaster Relief Fund, which has about $1.4 billion in it currently. My gut would tell me that were, the, were they to go this route, uh, Congress could make an appropriation or Congress would make an appropriation into uh, that fund to increase the value of it. Uh, the second way that they could do it is through the Public Health Service Act, uh, which requires a declaration from the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, and would unlock resources more greatly focused on uh, the medical side. It would allow for the mobilization and deployment of medical staff to underserved areas, uh, training to individuals to better utilize uh, medication to treat assisted treatment, um, and waive uh, certain state licensing requirements for doctors uh, in states to um, allow for you know, more doctors to kind of go directly into those areas. So basically, like when we have a, a disaster, a hurricane, uh, or a tornado in uh, you know, a state, uh, this allows for FEMA to really rush in there. It allows for the National Guard to mobilize quickly. And this would basically be that kind of response uh, for this national health emergency that we're seeing. Now, interestingly enough, this would really be an unprecedented uh, response because what we have largely done in the past is for things like Zika or Ebola, uh, things that are more short-term in duration. But as we all know, uh, the opioid and heroin epidemic and addiction more broadly, uh, this is a long-term chronic illness. So we've never really done it uh, for something that is you know, going to be a long-term response to the problem. They've all been more uh, short-run uh, in the time it takes to clean up after a hurricane or a tornado. This is certainly much more longer-lasting. So we're really in uncharted territory, and we'll it remains to be seen which direction these guys will actually uh, take, but uh, we certainly agree that it's the right direction to take, and uh, we'll, we'll see how it uh, plays out. So I suppose one of their challenges will be to determine um, you know, their, their, how much funds you're going to need and how much they can really tap into and not leave ourselves short for these national disasters that would come up between now and the end of the year. Correct. Yeah, there's going to be, uh, as I mentioned before, about the budget that's coming up uh, in September, and we run out of, the federal government runs out of money on September 30th. So as they're beginning to really draw the outlines of what that budget is going to look like, uh, they're really going to have to take into account the potential to add uh, something like this into it. Now, they could always do a supplemental 
emergency funding response after the budget, um, but they're probably going to have to find pay-fors for that as well, depending on how much uh, money there is. I'm, I'm sure there will be sections of Congress that will want this to be uh, paid for, but your analysis is absolutely correct that uh, this is going to take some serious thinking by the appropriators uh, to, to really make sure that they're putting enough money into it, while at the same time not exhausting resources fully for other uh, things that we may run into uh, this fall. Well, thank you, Jay. What final thoughts would you care to share with our listeners on the way forward in addressing the opioid epidemic? Sure. Well, thank you for that. And I appreciate the time again today uh, to have this conversation with you. I come from uh, Capitol Hill. It's my my background. I was a a chief of staff for a member of Congress. And oftentimes this advice sounds trite, but it is extraordinarily important. Uh, I would urge every single person that listens to uh, this podcast or is engaged in this issue in some way or shape or form to call their member of Congress, to go to a town hall, to write letters, uh, to get in touch with their local officials, their state officials, and the federal officials in Congress and at the Senate level as well. Um, but get in front of as many people as you can and let your voice be heard. I think if you look at the process that healthcare has taken uh, over the last eight months, you can see a direct impact from the ability of individuals to speak out in favor of or against any specific initiatives and actually make a difference at the federal level. I think we saw that uh, this term with the AHCA and the BCRA on the Senate side. I think we saw that um, with health care reform and the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and when it was signed into law in 2010. So it, it may seem like one person's voice does not matter in the abstract. It absolutely does. So I would urge every single person, like you have, Greg, uh, to get involved at every level of government because their voice matters. Get engaged. Get engaged in the topic. Get engaged uh, with your legislators. Get engaged with all your state and county officials and stay involved and follow up. Uh, Join uh, movements at the grassroots level. Take a look at our webpage. Uh, We have uh, things up uh, right now that Uh, talk about the things that you can do within your community to become involved and the difference that you can make uh, at your community level right now today. So I would stay involved. I would uh, follow up and uh, take a look at our paper that we'll release in a couple weeks and call your members of Congress. And to go to to your website, they go to what URL? www.addictionpolicy.org. Excellent. Thank you again, Jay. Yes, sir. Thank you. We've been visiting today with Jay Rue. Jay is the Chief Operating Officer and Vice President of Government Affairs for the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington, D.C. Next, we'll talk about the Senate's health care reform attempts this past July and the ramifications for the opioid epidemic. Joining me now is Lydia Ramsey, a reporter for the Business Insider, covering the pharmaceutical and biotech industries and health care. So, Lydia, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay. So last week was really a historic week, mainly because of what almost happened. So can you kind of walk us through what went on in the Senate last week? Sure. Yeah, this was really unprecedented. I was I was chatting with our, our policy editor over here and was wondering if, if what happened last week was something that happens all the time. And, and coming from more of a kind of covering the business and science world, maybe I wasn't really familiar with it. But no, it was really like the first time that the Senate... Um, kind of created this motion to proceed, um, which basically just opened up the floor to debate um, for a vote on a health care bill, but they didn't actually have a, a definitive text of the bill. So this is really kind of crazy. Um, so what happened is after they voted on the motion to proceed, that happened on last Tuesday, 
Um, that kind of just opened the floor to 20 hours of debate, but evenly between Democrats and Republicans. And during the course of that, they kind of got to suss out um, what might work and what didn't. Um, so at first they started off, they'd been working on this bill called the Better Care Reconciliation Act. Um, and this was kind of the Senate's version of, of what Obamacare repeal and replace would look like. So, so it was a little bit different than the bill that passed in the House of Representatives. Um, so it was just kind of, it had a huge cut to Medicaid, as you mentioned, kind of especially with regard to the Medicaid expansion, um, a huge ramifications. And, and so the, the first vote that came up last week during those crazy 20 hours of a debate um, was on a version of the BCRA, um, and that did not pass. So once that happened, kind of everyone had to take a hard look at where the Senate bill was, and and people started kind of shifting their attention toward this idea of a skinny bill, which would have just essentially repealed some of like the the, the big headaches um, Republicans had with Obamacare, especially uh, the individual and employer mandates that mandated that everyone had to have insurance coverage, um, and really not, nothing much else. Um, and so during the course of the debate, they continued to have other kind of crazy votes. They were voted on a repeal-only bill. Um, that didn't pass. They actually voted on a single-payer bill. That also didn't pass. It was kind of wild. Uh, and then, yeah, they ended up on this skinny bill, um, which ultimately didn't pass as well. So that was kind of the week in a nutshell. A lot of grasping a straw to, to get a health care bill passed. But they really didn't know what it looked like starting at the beginning of the week. So the first vote, the only vote of the week that passed, was the one that said, okay, we're going to open this to debate on the floor. Correct, yes. There actually was another um, kind of smaller vote that, that passed. It was about kind of repealing a little uh, Cadillac tax. But ultimately that was kind of null because the pill itself didn't pass. So, right, the Cadillac tax. Um, so, okay, let's, so the second, the second bill that was voted on, Mm-hmm. Break that down, and for the common man, what was what did that entail? Sure. Um, so this was a, a repeal only bill. It was the same one, uh, basically the same language as a bill that they brought up to. It passed the House, it passed the Senate, and it went up to President Obama. Um, and in that one, kind of everyone kind of knew that Obama would ultimately veto the bill, and they wouldn't have the votes to override that veto. So it was kind of an easy one to, to vote yes on for Republicans and get that win. Um, but when it came to voting on it this time, um, senators were not as excited about it. Um, they really had been kind of pushing for this repeal and replace. And in the bill, um, the text of this bill was really all about repealing and then giving like a two-year kind of break period to, to let uh, someone come up with a repeal plan, which just sounded a little bit bonkers, like create something and it kind of kind of bet on something that, that didn't actually exist just yet. Um, so when it came to the vote, um, it ended up being, I think, seven Republican senators decided to vote against the repeal-only plan. So really what it came down to is they didn't like the idea of the two-year window to replace it. They wanted repeal and replace right away. So that one went down. What was the next one then? The next one, um, goofily, was the single-payer vote. Um, people didn't really talk about this because it was really mostly just a, a trolley kind of thing. Um, one of the Republican senators, um, I believe he's from Montana, he decided to bring the bill up uh, for a vote, um, and he, he kind of took some language from a bill that's been kind of supported by Senator Bernie Sanders and a couple of folks in the House of Representatives, um, creating kind of this Medicare for all system. Um, so it was a legitimate text of a bill, but it was totally a troll vote. Like the, the, the Republican senator who brought it up for a vote didn't even vote yes on it himself. 
Um, and so most uh, Democrats voted present instead of a yes. Um, and, and some voted, Democrats actually voted no um, toward the bill. So in the end, that vote definitely did not pass. I think it got one or two yes votes in total. Lydia, what's a troll vote? Uh, it's just it's like uh, trying to throw people off their game and, and mess with them and uh-huh. kind of just Gamesmanship. That's what it is. is. Yeah, it's, a, it's all about the game. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So, and and what is single payer in in again common terms? What does that mean? What would in essence? What's sure. what's the essence of this? What's a single payer? So, a single payer system is this idea. Right now, in the U.S., we have a bunch of different health insurance companies that kind of pay for our health care. Right. So, if you are on Medicare or Medicaid, that person paying for your health care is the government. Um, and then if you don't, if you have commercial insurance, uh, like Aetna or Blue Cross, that's um, through commercial insurance, and, and those kind of companies are paying for your health care. Under a single-payer system, really everybody would be covered by the government. The government would become the person paying for everyone's health care. So okay. it would totally change the way uh, U.S. health care is structured. Um, it, it's really popular over in Europe and also in Canada. They also have kind of different variations on this system. Um, of how the government funds your health care. Okay, so let's move on. That one went down. Let's move on to the next vote. Yeah, last vote was on the uh, skinny bill. So we got the text of the bill at 10 p.m. on Thursday night, and they were planning a vote around midnight. So really not that much time to debate it. Um, it again, it just kind of repealed kind of the individual mandate tax um, and, or sorry, um, penalty, and then the employer mandate um, for, I believe, just a couple of years. It was all really temporary procedures. Um, and ultimately, the weird thing about this bill was that the Senate itself and the people proposing it didn't actually want the text of that bill as it was when they were passing it, or hopefully passing it, to become law. So they were passing a bill that didn't actually want to become a law, which is wild. So basically, the whole point was to get um, the bill to the House of Representatives, where then Hopefully, um, the two houses or two parts of Congress could come together and chat it over and kind of come to um, a common ground. But the the breaking point is that the House didn't necessarily need to do it. If the House wanted to, the House could have just passed that skinny bill on Friday with no conference between the House and the Senate. So it was a weird gamble to do. And and some senators, including it it seems like John McCain, uh, didn't ultimately get on board with that. You know, the Trump administration is talking about let it implode, and as it turns out, they've got some power to do just that, to help it along with imploding. So speak to that and speak to the cost-sharing reduction payments that the Trump administration has the option to pass or play on, as I understand it. For sure, yeah. It's it's, it's um, really the next shooting drop. We're still not sure whether or not the Trump administration will pay out these um cost-sharing reductions. And what these are are payments that essentially kind of help insurers um, subsidize um, premiums for, for people who are living um, or who have an annual income that's 200% of the federal poverty level. So so not super-duper, like, Medicare-qualifying level um, in, in po- like poverty level-wise, but um, they definitely don't have as much money as, as the next person. Um, so they do need a little bit of extra help in covering their premiums. Um, and so under the Affordable Care Act, these, these kind of cost-sharing reductions got put in place as a way to really incentivize insurers to stay with these um, plans and, and kind of cover these people who might otherwise not be able to afford insurance. Um, so it's, it's a really big benefit. Um, and so if 
the cost-sharing reduction payments don't come from the Trump administration. Um, that, that has huge ramifications on which insurers ultimately decide to stay in uh, the Obamacare exchanges. Um, we've also we've recently seen a lot of movement in there. Um, Molina Health um, just pulled out of a bunch of markets in Wisconsin, and I believe it was Anthem that pulled out of a bunch of markets in um, California, kind of started citing this uncertainty. Um, so really having clarity around whether or not the administration going to pay for them in the first place, and then ultimately if they decide not to, it could have really negative ramifications on, on the Obamacare exchanges. So basically what it comes down to is it's the equivalent of um, the Trump administration has to write that check every single month to insurance companies, and that subsidizes the insurance companies so that they can support these low-cost plans for people. And uh, they have to... Uh, get in their plans right now, the insurance companies right now have to submit their plans and get them approved for 2018 uh, with the uh, administration, right? Correct. Yeah. So so for the past, I I guess, seven months, um, the administration has been paying out these cost-sharing reduction payments. Um, But yeah, so we're coming up on this end of September deadline. That's when uh, plans really have to solidify which areas they'll be in, which ones they won't be in. Um, so there are still a few counties that don't have insurance uh, plans on the health care exchanges um, for 2018, um, but those could close up. But yeah, so, so what, what, um, there's a bipartisan effort going on right now. Um, Lamar Alexander uh, from the Republican side of things and, and Patty Murray on the Democrat side of things over in the Senate, they're kind of working on this uh, kind of temporary bill that will essentially kind of grant the Senate to, or the Congress to have power to kind of pay for these uh, cost-sharing reductions. Um, but in the meantime, the uh, Trump administration could have some pretty devastating effects, um, especially if that short-term bill doesn't ultimately come to fruition. Uh, so, so right now, Alexander has asked that um, the Trump administration do continue to do these payments until the end of September. So we're still waiting on word whether or not the administration is, is going to comply with that. Yeah, in one of your articles, in fact, you quantify the number of people that would are right now are enjoying uh, the ability to get treatment, to get help because of Medicaid expansion, and that number was two hundred and twenty thousand people. Um, right. So, quite a number of people that are afforded that opportunity just because of Medicaid expansion. So, it's it's really it's unconscionable uh, that they that you know, Congress would go ahead and allow that to go away. Any insight there, further insight on that, Lydia? Yeah, it was really interesting to me to kind of see how the, the, the BCRA, that original repeal and replacement from the Senate, it kind of talked a lot about how we want to. Originally, the first round of language set aside a few billion dollars for the opioid epidemic, but later on, it was revised to set aside $45 billion toward the opioid epidemic. But as I was talking with um, someone over at the New York, New York Presbyterian Hospital um, in Manhattan, we were talking about how this $45 billion really wouldn't go all that far. It, it, it's a way less than when what's provided for under the Medicaid expansion and it covering those several hundred thousand people who might not otherwise have had treatment. Um, and, and so from a financial perspective, um, the $45 billion might not have gotten enough uh, to, to kind of provide for the opioid epidemic as, as the current system is. Well, thank you for your time today, Lydia. Thank you. 
Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. We've been joined today by Lydia Ramsey. Lydia is a reporter for the Business Insider, covering the pharmaceutical and biotech industries as well as healthcare. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.